0: This is the Orange Podcast. Conversations with Orange City Council for the local community.
1: This is Alan Reader. Thanks for tuning in for the latest episode of the Orange Podcast. Coming up this week, the first furry visitors of the season roll into Orange, and the idea of a 40 kilometre an hour speed limit in the heart of the city prompts debate. Both those stories coming up later in the show. First up though today, while the role of Orange City Council with making decisions about planning matters and building approvals is pretty well understood, there's another layer of decision making that's much less well known. The work of these regional planning panels, located somewhere between local council and the state planning minister, was in the news this week, as another step was taken in a dispute affecting a former heritage hospital building in Orange. The future of Coldwell House is hanging in the balance. The building's owner, Health Infrastructure, wants to demolish it, Orange City Council wants to save it, and a body called the Western Region Planning Panel has the job of trying to sort out that dilemma. The Council's Development Services Director, Mark Hodges, explains why the WRPP gets involved to help sort decisions of regional significance.
0: Sometimes developments are larger than, like the impacts can go broader than just the Council area that they're in, and um, so... Um, there's particular times when that comes up and, that, and it's more so than just the individual council giving consideration to it. It says, look, an expert panel made up of people with particular skills should be on it to just to check what the impacts are around the region or the state of a particular development.
1: One of those who have, there's been some movement in this week is called House. If you remember a, a historic building across the road from the Old Base Hospital, there's some big discussion about that. Its owner wants to demolish it. Um, council wants it to stay. How does the Western Region Planning Panel buy into that, Mark?
0: Yeah, that's a tricky one because it's a Crown development. So the Government, um, when... the Council doesn't have the authority to be able to refuse a development of the Crown. So if we don't get to an agreement, we normally negotiate a position, but if we get to a point where we can't get to an agreement, the Crown can decide to, to refer the matter to the Joint Regional Planning Panel or the Western Region Planning Panel in this case and ask them to determine the application.
1: So at the heart of the dispute between Council and health infrastructure is what to do with asbestos in a building. To summarise, would it be right to say that infrastructure wants to deal with that asbestos by demolishing the building? Council believes there's there's some heritage value, so fix the asbestos but keep the building. Is that at the heart of the problem?
0: Yeah, that's spot on. Um, the the building was damaged. Um, when it was left vacant, people broke into it, uh, stripped a bit of the copper work out, and, it, and it's damaged the asbestos it was nat- like already in the building um, it makes it tricky to work with tricky to clean up and uh, the 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 crowns suggesting it's it's quite difficult to actually rehabilitate and reuse whereas council's position is the building's significant from a heritage point of view and really ought to be cleaned up so future developers can reuse it into a, you know, a mixed-use type thing, whether it's a nursing home or some other commercial activity there or a, a medium-density residential development. So the WRPP has, has
1: listened to the arguments and, and earlier this week they decided to, to bring those two sets of costings together. What's the next step?
0: Yeah, they've asked, uh, asked council to work with health infrastructure, so the applicant, the Crown, to go away and get an expert consultant Um, to review the economics of if uh, the building was to be rehabilitated and reused, parts of it kept and reused, what would that cost be? And compare that to what would the cost be to rehabilitate and uh, clean it up and then demolish the building? So because it's got asbestos in it, they've got to clean it up anyway before they knock it over. So they just want to compare the two to see whether it's actually economically feasible to maintain the building or retain the building. Will there be a decision this year? Yes, certainly. The uh, Western Region Planning Panel is very keen to get this uh, underway, so they've given us a tight deadline, um, so uh, given us four weeks. So by the 11th of uh, December, we will need to have a final report back to the, uh, the panel with the expert uh, advice in that.
1: And then it's up to them to make the call. Yeah,
0: they, they won't need to meet in person this time, uh, they've already been up on site, they've had a good look at the site, so they could even do this over the phone or email um, amongst themselves, they don't need to see it again. And then some public
1: announcement, we'll wait and see what happens before Christmas. Yes. Thanks for your time Mark. Good to see you. Among the dozens of changes being floated for Orange's CBD upgrade called Future City is a plan to introduce a 40km an hour speed limit in the CBD. An online survey currently underway is running about 50-50 in support and opposition to the change from residents. Comms team member Ellie Bryce took to the streets to see how locals are sizing up the proposed change.
2: We're down here just outside the Commonwealth Bank on Summer Street, and we're out to ask people what they would think about the proposal to turn the main street from 50 k's an hour down to 40 k's. Can we sacrifice getting through the main street a couple of seconds slower for the safety of pedestrians and to make our city more walkable? Or is the main street something we want to keep at 50 k's? Let's see what they have to say. What are your thoughts on if we did turn the main street here in Summer Street from 50 k's an hour down to
3: 40 k's? I think it would be a very good idea because no-one no one sticks to the speed limit anyway. Um, and I think for people walking, it would be much, much safer. I think safety for people walking is very important.
1: Well, I think it would be a good thing. Um, I'm not from Orange... But when I come here, all the beautiful parks, uh, the way the town's set up, I just love it. I do, however, get annoyed with uh, some of the, the traffic that comes up and down the main street. I just think it takes away from the ambience and the whole feel of orange, particularly trucks and particularly cars that seem to go a lot faster than the speed limit.
2: Well I'm a driver myself so and when I'm going to work I normally go through the CBD so I would like to keep it at 50 but I guess as a pedestrian 40 would be good just because a lot of people do go fast in this area so yeah. And what are your thoughts towards this proposal?
1: Uh, I think it's a, a great proposal to be honest and needs to happen. Um, last night we were wandering around town and for this beautiful regional town to have people driving what I consider the speeds, and at times dangerously up the street, um, didn't fit in with the beautiful regional a- atmosphere of the city.
2: I think 50 is a like a good speed limit, but yeah, definitely if you're a pedestrian, 40 would be ideal.
1: And the Your Say Orange site has more info about the proposed change. As well as completing a survey, you can find out about crash data and the relative impact of crashes at faster and slower speeds. Simply search for Your Say Orange. Now you can tell summer is getting very, very close in Orange when the first flying foxes of the year cruise into town. The big questions are how long they'll stay and whose trees will the flying fox camp be staying in this year. Orange City Council is about to draft a management plan to try and manage these colourful tourists. A community survey has just concluded as part of putting this plan together. City Presentation Manager Nigel Hobden has been out counting the first arrivals near Ploughman's Lane.
3: Um, at this point in time we've got around about 100 um, and it's a mixed colony or camp. So there are a flying fox called the Little Red And then there is the vulnerable species, which is the grey-headed flying fox.
2: Have we always had the two come come and visit us, or is is the red one a a recent addition?
3: Um, The red is relatively recent. The first time flying foxes came in any large numbers that we're aware of, um, certainly this century, was in about 2010, and that was a population of anywhere up to about 5,000 grey-headed flying foxes and they took up residence in Cook Park at that time um, on Ploughman's Lane. From when I've I've started taking records, um, it has always been a mixed camp where you have little reds and the grey-headed flying foxes down there.
2: Are they here particularly early this year compared to previous years?
3: Yeah, definitely are. Um, Most years we've had them come in January or February, um, and then they stay through until about March. This is the first time that um, we're aware of when they've arrived as early as uh, November. So they've been here now for a, about uh, two weeks.
2: Have you got any idea why they've turned up so early?
3: Um, look, as with scientists and, and wild animals, you can only make some um, presumptions about it. But obviously there's a good food source here for them. And wherever they were feeding previously, they've uh, that food source has been exhausted. And they've now moved here. There are a lot of eucalypts in blossom at the moment and that's one of the preferences for what flying foxes will feed on is uh, the nectar from um, flowering native trees.
2: And how do the orchards... Um, obviously, there's been a lot of concern about the orchards around since the, flo- the flying foxes have been coming to our city. What, um, do, they, do they go into the orchards and do they eat the fruit there as well?
3: Yeah, look, um, flying foxes will certainly um, enter into orchards Um, A lot of orchards have uh, hail netting over their uh, crops now, which um, with side netting to it prevents flying foxes flying in and and raiding orchard trees. From what um, scientists have advised and uh, through forums is that flying foxes, they find um, the fruit trees as in orchards, cherries or apples, it's a very fast sugar fix for them. Um, And they are very... uh, the, The disappointing thing for orchardists is that flying foxes will nibble on an apple say but they won't eat the whole thing and they'll go and try another apple until they find one that's got the, the resources that they need but it's a sugar hit it's like having a sports drink and getting that hit and flying off again their preference for value would be um, certainly native fruit trees and nectar from native trees mm-hmm.
2: There's been a lot of negativity towards the flying foxes because of the smell and the damage that they cause and everything, but they actually do play a very important part in our ecosystem. What, what, sort of, what is that?
3: Ecology-wise, they're extremely important because they are a um, long-distance pollinator. So flying foxes have been recorded flying anywhere up to um, about a 1,000 kilometres in a six-month period. Um, so they stretch from uh, it's the grey headed frying foxes, they can migrate anywhere from uh, South Australia, so Adelaide, round through the coastline through um, Melbourne and Victoria, and all the way up the east coast to southeast Queensland. So when you look at the extent that they travel, um, and they're because they're um, licking the nectar from native flowers. They're getting pollen on their faces. They then go and feed in another tree. Um, They then pollinate that flower of that tree. They eat fruits predominantly from rainforest trees and they're major dispersers of rainforest um, uh, seeds across the eastern seaboard. Um, so there's no other animals in Australia. Um, birds don't fly that far and deposit um, faeces which contain seeds ready to germinate. So, yeah, flying foxes are regarded as extremely important to our ecology.
2: Now, Orange City Council recently did a survey of the community to gauge community attitudes towards flying foxes coming to Orange. What was the aim of that
3: we're currently developing a camp management plan for the Orange local government area, and we've engaged a company called Shore, um, who are very experienced in flying foxes um, and camp management plans. The survey was to gauge what Orange residents feel about flying foxes, whether they're um, concerned by their presence here because of some of the factors we've mentioned, the noise and the smell, Um, the damage that they can actually do to our ornamental trees as well um, because they do shed leaves uh, or uh, take leaves off the trees when they're um, roosting, flying in, flying out. Um, They do quite a lot of defoliation of uh, upper canopies of trees. Um, And, uh, yeah, whether people are ambivalent to it and don't really mind what the flying fox's presence is here. So we've had, um, it was close to 300 um, residents responded in the survey, um, and it's uh, about a um, even Stevens thirty odd percent for each category of coming back of what I've just mentioned.
2: So the management plan will really be sort of like a guide for council and the community um, for the best way for us to live with the flying foxes and care for them as a protected species, but also care for our our vegetation and our Um, our community at the same time?
3: Yeah, look, it's certainly looking to find a balance. Um, The grey-headed flying fox is a vulnerable species and therefore, like all animals, it's got protection um, as a native animal, but its level of protection steps up because it's uh, noted as a vulnerable species. So, yeah, the the cat management plan will look at what steps we can actually take um, to look at possibly relocation of the camp, if that is an option. There's a number of studies that have been um, done into relocation attempts and the economic value that is invested in those and the success of the outcomes. Um, So it'll look at um, opportunities to find a better spot for them to camp so they're not affecting either our magnificent trees in Cook Park or the residents that are in the local locality of Ploughman's Lane where they're getting disturbed by them. Um, it will just guide us in our principles and how, yes, we can manage flying foxes that come in an urban environment and that interaction with people.
2: Um, what uh, What's your advice for orange residents who might be concerned about them or have an issue?
3: Um, so our population, yeah, we're only at about 100 at the moment. Um, I suppose I'm going to make an assumption that we'll get to somewhere around about 2,000 flying foxes in orange. When the, the Ploughman's uh, Creek campsite gets to capacity, the likelihood is that there'll be a new camp established back in Cook Park. Um, flying foxes have a tremendous memory. Um, they are a very social animal and they talk to each other and pass on information about where campsites are, where food sources are. Um, so they're in their highly social nature they um, will pass on this information and then set up camps so I expect that we'll have an influx of flying foxes in uh, the coming months um, one of the other aspects of the flying foxes is they will fly for up to 40 kilometers in a night to find their food source so that's a quite a large range that's nearly to Bathurst. Um, the other aspect is is that flying foxes are highly mobile in their camps. What I mean by that is that um, they, you may have 2,000 flying foxes in a camp here in Orange um, on any one given day. The next day, there's still 2,000, but they could be it could be a 50% changeover of the population because they go out at night time to feed, and then they may go from their feeding site to another campsite, not necessarily return back to the campsite that they left from. Um, and this is one of the issues that makes dispersal of flying foxes extremely costly and extremely difficult is that you go there to do a dispersal activity on one day three days later there's a whole new population of flying foxes that didn't know that you've been there banging drums and uh, trying to scare them off so uh, it's a very difficult task to look at um, that dispersal side of things one thing that's happening in the next couple of days is um, there is a national flying fox census so that's a count um, so yeah we'll be counting the flying foxes in the Ploughman's Valley camp and do a quick check to make sure they haven't arrived in uh, Cook Park. If they have we'll count them there as well and we feed that back to the um, the national body so that they can actually do an estimation of how many of particular species in this case we're counting the grey-headed flying foxes how many of those are in their population and see what that whether they're making a recovery or whether they're stagnant or whether there still is decline and if there's decline it's looking at okay what do we need to do to uh, ensure that this species doesn't go from vulnerable to the next level which would be endangered. Nigel Hobden was talking with comms team
1: member Liv Sargent. Thanks for being here for the show this week. Just before we go, it was interesting to check some analytics for the Orange podcast this week and learn that we're getting some regular downloads from overseas. I'm guessing former Orange residents now living internationally are keeping up to date by tuning in this week. We'd love to know where you are and what you like about the show. Simply send us an email and we'll look to do a shout out to your neck of the globe when we can. You can email podcast at orange.nsw.gov.au. That's podcast at orange.nsw.gov.au. And of course, you can subscribe where you get your podcasts. Until next time, this is Alan Reeder. Bye for now.